You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Scottish Football Forum podcast. I'm John and I've got another guest special and a good time for this one um, with a lot of good things happening in women's football. I have the Head of Girls and Women's Football at the SFA, Fiona McIntyre. Fiona, thanks for coming along. How are you this evening? I'm good, thanks John. Thanks for having me on. I say evening, but by the time people listen to it, it could be any time of the day, so <laughs> rookie mistake. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, on the night that we're recording, um, 30th of March, um, it was a special night for women's football overall because um, the world record attendance was broken in Barcelona when they were playing Real Madrid this evening as they won 5-2. Um, for a lot of critics who say women's game will never catch on, that's quite a two fingers up to them, isn't it? It's quite a statement, John, isn't it? Who would have thought we'd see 90,000 people watching Real Madrid play Barcelona? It's just incredible. But I think that just shows you how far the game has come because... There's a lot of people not that surprised about that. We almost expected it and we saw it coming. So, you know, it's a huge statement of intent from both those clubs and just wider for women's football. Yeah, it's tremendous. And also Barcelona are setting a new, um, a new level in terms of the the European game in Scotland. Um, we're, we're still getting there. and But it has been encouraging to see that um, some of the more professional clubs, um, shall we say, using their, um, their their main stadiums like Petorje and Easter Road and recently Celtic Park um, to host games. And uh, there's been a, a decent um, um, response from it as well. Yeah, and I've been to all of those stadiums. So I was up at Petorje uh, just last week for the game against Rangers, having been previously at Hibs and Antine Castle for the, the two um, Edinburgh derbies. And then on Saturday, um, took the family to watch Celtic Hibs at Celtic Park. So... It's brilliant to see clubs really embracing our, our women's team. Um, it was actually really good at the weekend there to see the Celtic fans who were so loud for the game and really got behind the team. They just saw on the pitch a team of Celtic players. It didn't matter to them if it was male or female. And I think that's what we want to encourage, that, that clubs really embrace our women's teams. And hopefully we can start to drive those audiences up because we did get some really good crowds. But I think with a bit of a longer lead into some of those fixtures in the future, we could maybe even look at enhancing and getting those numbers up. And uh, I don't think we'll ever get 90,000 just by the fact we don't have any stadiums in Scotland that hold that many people. But I think if we can keep pushing those numbers up, then we're, we're doing something right. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think Celtic picked the right weekend because it was um, the Men's International weekend. There's obviously no Celtic fixtures at Parkhead and there's no Celtic fixtures anywhere else. So it was a good marketing tool for them to bring it in. Maybe that's something that if we're going into, um, you know, next season, that maybe we could, um, one of the suggestions I would certainly suggest is, a Derby Day weekend on a national weekend, you could have Celtic Rangers, Hibs Hearts and I bet you would get a decent response, providing there's no men's national team on the, the weekend, of course. Yeah, John, you need a wee spot in our working group because that's exactly what we've been speaking about in the last few weeks. Um, we're working up a bit of a skeleton draft calendar at the moment for what next season will look like and where the league and the cup fixtures will all fall. Um, and one of the things we're actually doing as part of that process is trying to pinpoint where other weeks in the season where we think we can have maybe showcase weekends of women's football, when we can get access to some of the bigger stadiums and, and really put on a show. And we came to the same conclusion that the men's international weekends were the kind of obvious choice for that because there's less domestic men's football and sometimes people have a real desire for domestic football, even in the, 
the international windows and also the stadiums are generally uh, available and uh, you're more likely to get a yes when you go and ask the groundkeeper at the stadium. So that is something we're looking at doing, trying to create three or four sort of moments across the season. It also gives you a little bit more of a lead-in to promote it and hopefully that helps kind of raise awareness and get more people along to those games. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, with, the, with regards to the... Um the, cha- the challenges that you, um, I, I was speaking to Vivian McLaren recently, who's uh, mostly chair of SWF, and um, she said it was a, a big, you know, it was hard work to try and get some of the professional clubs on board. Obviously, we're getting more and more of them on board now. Um, so, how how do you how do you see things going forward um, in terms of raising the profile further and getting the clubs more and more on board? Because although there is progress and it's good to see the stadium filled, there's still a lot of work to be done. Like for example. There's been a couple of Celtic Rangers matches um, that have passed by um, at Airdrie and the Rangers training centre unnoticed. Like the Cup weekend, for example, that was a pretty big letdown, to be honest, from an outsider's point of view. I think there's a number of things you can do. What we're trying to do with the new sort of league setup is raise standards across the board. So there are certain things that the league can do in terms of using licensing criteria to raise the standard of infrastructure at clubs and encourage that um, promotion. But we also need to remember just how far we've come in a pretty short space of time. You know, when I got involved with women's football um, in the sense of being involved in the governance and the administration of it back in 2014, we were nowhere near where we are now. That, that There wasn't a mechanism to technically pay female players in Scotland professionally. Um, so we had no actual players on professional contracts. There wasn't a league sponsor. There was no broadcast coverage whatsoever. And generally, the, the clubs, there wasn't a real affiliation between the female club and the male club, if you like. So when you look at in quite a short space of time, just how far that's come and there's real integration, clubs are all just at different phases in their journey. You would probably look at Rangers and say they are pretty fully integrated into that club in terms of the access to the training, the full-time staff, the full-time players. There's some other clubs on that journey. You've got obviously Celtic and Glasgow City that are also full-time and integrated into and City have obviously of their own model, which is slightly different. Other clubs across the piece are just on a different, a different stage in that journey. And it's our job to try and keep everyone moving in that upward direction so that we, we it's all about the product. If we can make the product on the pitch better, that only comes with the clubs creating a professional environment for the players. If the product on the pitch is good. People will come, broadcasters will come, revenues will come, and then that all begins to come sort of self-fulfilling. So that that's the sort of dream. That's what we're trying to get to that space where um, one thing feeds the other and the whole game just is enhanced for it. Yeah. Um, and you're obviously, uh, we mentioned at the start um, that you're the heads of girls and women's football at the SFA, but right now you've got a temporary job um, as interim managing director at SWPL for four months to oversee the transition from Scottish women's football to the SPFL model. Now, um, there've been some people are behind um, are behind it. There are other people are um, sceptical. Personally, I don't mind admitting this um, on air. Um, I'm sceptical because I've seen the job that the SPFL do in the men's game. I don't think they do a great job. That's just a personal point of view. What do you have to say to doubters like myself um, who who are a wee bit wary about this changeover? Because I just don't want to see the women's game fall into the same trap. There's a few things, John. So first of all, um, I'd rather people are critical than apathetic because it shows that people are now bothered and they actually care about women's football and the future of it. So I actually have got no issue with anyone that wants to criticise or has an opinion that's slightly um, maybe different to my own. 
The second thing is that this was driven by the clubs through the sort of significant review piece that we did through the Scottish FA. Um, what came out of that was the clubs were really wanting a more professional environment to thrive in. They wanted to be somewhere where they felt there'd be a better chance of them delivering more revenues. And they wanted a, a governance structure that was more fit for purpose for where the game had got to. So the SPFL were always just sitting willing and able to help. They didn't force this through. It was very much the clubs of the Premier League themselves that wanted this to happen. And I think probably the last thing I'd say on it is that the way the new company is going to be structured, the board is going to be made up of five Premier League club reps and also some independent directors. But um, the clubs will have the majority on that board. So the individuals involved in women's football and the women's football club still very much own their own destiny. They're the ones that will make decisions for it. So you've got the benefit of the SPFL, the size and scale and reach in terms of maybe tapping into different broadcast and commercial markets. But at the same time, you've still got control of your own destiny through that board structure. So um, I think um, there will be doubters and that's okay. I think that's good and it's healthy that there's that kind of reasoned critique out there. But um, I think the SPFL will, will prove those doubters wrong in due course. I really hope so. Um, I really do hope so. And, um, you know, I do wish you all the best for that. So just tell us a little bit more about the purpose of um, your role. Yeah, so I'm on a, a loan move at the moment to the, um, to the SPFL. So it's a four-month role for me. Um, essentially, in a nutshell, it's about setting up these new leagues and establishing everything that needs to be in place for kicking off in August. So um, there's some sort of really basic stuff like setting up the company, um, recruiting the board members, getting the articles of association, the competition rules. So all that sort of real basic governance that just needs to be in place to underpin the organisation is... Um, sort of one of the fundamentals that need to be addressed. But then you've got the more football-related or fun stuff, as I call it. So you're looking at the, the kind of fixture calendar, how that's going to look um, next year, obviously trying to attract commercial partners, broadcast partners, and then just all the administrative processes that underpin the league in terms of registrations and IT. Um, and, and one of the kind of more exciting things we're doing is there'll be a rebrand of the competitions as well. So the clubs will be involved in that process over the next couple of months and hopefully it will really be a, a real showcase when we kick off the season. It'll be a real sort of marker in the sand that this is a, a new era and something to be excited about and people will um, really sort of have some affinity with, with that new brand. So yeah, there's a lot of work streams going on at one time, so it's definitely very busy, but we've got a really strong working group made up of um, eight of the clubs that are going to be involved in the Premier League next year and and they're very much influencing and supporting that process and I'm doing the legwork I think is probably the best description they're the decision makers and I do the legwork to, to make it happen you know dog's body basically is that what you're trying pretty to say much, much, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> oh, I'm sure um, it'll all go well but uh, Dave, um, David Smith asked a question here um, he was he used to do the media for uh, for, for Farmington um, what changes can we expect in the transition from SWF to SPFL and what is the feedback um, with the clubs been like? The feedback from the clubs has been really good as I say we've got eight of them on the, the working group at the moment um, and they're all working really sort of positively and collaboratively together to try and get the league up and running in a good place by the by the time we kick off in uh, in August. So I think the changes you'll see, the, the obvious changes, the visible changes that you'll see from a football sense will be the competition itself will be slightly different. Um, it will be a 12-team Premier League one from, from next season, um, up from the 10 there is at the moment. So there'll be more games. There'll be a 32-game season for those Premier League one teams and 18 Premier League two. 
there'll still be promotion and relegation, so an automatic spot and a, a playoff spot between PL1 and PL2. There will also still be promotion and relegation between the Premier League 2 and the Championship, so down into the SWF competitions, because that pyramid is really important. It's not about sort of taking just the Premier League 1 and 2 and wrapping around them, and if you're lucky enough to be in right now, you're in forever more. It, it's got to be, people have got to be there on sport and merit, so that pyramid will continue to exist. Um, so certainly the changes you'll see in the competition structure, um, internally there'll be changes in terms of processes like registrations and things like that. Um, the brand in itself, the, the look and feel of the competition will, will be different. Um, the cup format's still in discussion at the moment, um, but some of the things you'll probably, you maybe won't notice them so much to begin with, but um, just some of the rules around entry to the competition that will set standards as high as they've ever been in terms of medical provision and things for players and clubs to ensure that that is really a professional environment and we showcase the very best of women's football and shine it in a, in a positive light. Absolutely, because the thing is, at the end of the day, I mean, you mentioned the growth. I mean, it's went from basically nothing. I mean, from the seventies when the SFA were the only organisation in Europe not to recognise, um, you know, a, a women's uh, national team, to where we are now. You know, it's it's such a great turnaround. And even before Anna Senior came in, you wouldn't have known much about women's football. And then she played a, a she was a driving force in where it is now. And I think because of that growth, I think. People just want to see that goal and don't want to see it stagnate, which is why there might be some reservations. So it's, it's good that you're able to try and clarify that. And that's not to say there won't be challenges along the way. I've learned there's always challenges along the way. Um, I remember sitting at the start of um, the end of 2019, we'd had the Scottish Cup final at Tynecastle, the largest ever crowd, probably one of the best ever games we've, we've seen that went to extra time. It was a 4 3 kind of late goal from Glasgow City that won it. Clear shame. That was an incredible day, a great occasion, and that was one of those moments that he did take a second to reflect and thought, oh, we're going places here. We did a big launch in the January, looking forward to kicking off the new season. And then COVID hit us, so there's challenges that you anticipate, and then there's challenges that you just don't see coming, and that was definitely in the latter category. So I'm under no illusions there will be challenges, but it's just about you've always just got to look ahead and focus on what it is that you're trying to achieve and You've gone back to the 70s there, John, but as I said, even when I came in in 2014, the game, it's unrecognisable from the point that I came in on the board as a volunteer. And you've mentioned Anna, there's a, there's a few people that, you know, have played a real pivotal role in that. And Anna's one of them. She came in and, you know, I think scared the life out of clubs, telling them they were now training four nights a week if they were wanting to get real about this. And, you know, she was met with, you know, some real scepticism about the reality and the possibility of that. But, now clubs, you know, that, that is the norm and, and some, and I think she deserves a lot of credit for really pushing and driving clubs on at that point. And, you know, it's up to people like myself that are involved now to pick up that mantle and make sure that we keep progressing and we don't stand still because other nations are moving and, and we need to keep up. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, on this, on this day that we're recording, um, the late Scotland squad um, was announced for the, the upcoming match against Spain and Spain's also one of those sides that have raised a massive bar as we found out to our expense um, recently um, and again it, it shows so much about how much the women's team have moved on you know qualifying for a Euros qualifying for a World Cup in consecutive years so when they miss out on this year's Euros it seems a major disappointment especially the nature of the three games that we that we lost that cost us you know it was 3-1-0 defeats and games that we dominated but just couldn't put the ball in it yeah I think 
I think you're right. Expectation was different. I think when we qualified for the Euros and the World Cup, we'd never done it before. So there was just that drive to, to achieve it. And both those teams did incredibly well to do it. But you make it all for your own back because you end up, the expectation becomes that you will qualify. And for me, Scotland should have that expectation. We shouldn't be embarrassed to be ambitious. We've got a quality of player that we should be competing at major tournaments. And that's what that's what we're all trying to do because the impact of a national team qualifying the World Cup, it goes way beyond the national team. It, it goes right into the, the root of what we're speaking about. It, it showcases women's football. People that maybe never normally watch football, the amount of people that watched that Argentina game and could tell you about the penalty incident that probably had never watched a game of women's football in their life, but that, that brought women's football into their living room and into their lives. So the qualifying for major tournaments is really important. Um, we've got a quality of players, as I say, that, that should be playing at major tournaments. Um, but this is where we need the domestic league to also be strong and help provide quality players for the national team that, that keeps us at a level where we can compete and um, hopefully go to major tournaments regularly. It shouldn't be a, a surprise or a one-off. We want to be competing there they're regularly as a nation, as as the men do. That there's no difference in that. Absolutely, and that's that's what you want um, is to see the men's team thrive and then the women's team thrive. So I mean, when the girls started doing things again, um, it was just just as well the men started qualifying again for something, and hopefully they can still do so. Um, and the women are still in the midst of a qualifying campaign. It's just had a wee bit of disruption caused by the unfortunate circumstances in Ukraine. To see the men's team as well. Um, but they still have a big game to look forward to against Spain. Um, £10 an adult, £5 child and free for anyone who's a member of Scotland Supporters Club. Um, what do you think of the chances are? I mean, I don't, I mean, they're not winning this group. Spain are just far too good right now. But do you think they can still qualify via playoff? Oh, definitely. You know, that absolutely has to be our ambition. So first and foremost, you're focused on Spain. That's the next game that's coming up. As you say, this window has been disrupted um, just through the unfortunate situations you've said in Ukraine at the moment. Um, but now it gives the players a real chance to focus. We've only got Spain in this window now, so they'll focus on that fixture. It'll be incredibly difficult. Spain are one of the best teams in the world, and there's no getting away from that. There's no naivety on our part that that's the case. But equally, we've got to set our own goals within that game and try and compete better and put in a better account of ourselves than we did over there. So there's targets within that for us to improve as a group and um, to take some confidence from. But absolutely, you know, we're realistic. Spain look like they're running away with this group. And you look at the scorelines I've had, that they're not even marginally winning games. They're winning them very, very comfortably. Unfortunately, the same happened against ourselves. So, But yeah, the playoffs is absolutely achievable for us. And um, that that is what we're aiming for, to get, get through the next few games. We obviously don't know when that Ukraine game exactly will happen. Um, but we'll be ready to play it whenever we're asked to. And we absolutely have to be looking to get that playoff spot and, and make it to the, the World Cup. I understand they've rescheduled it for June at the moment, but again, that can change because who knows when this thing's going to end and hopefully it ends soon, but you know, we've got to be realistic about these things as well. We just don't know. I know, you're right. And it's one of those things that it almost feels crass speaking about football when you watch the news and see some of the things that are going on in Ukraine. So we, we don't really speak about it too much. At the moment, we are, we've just kind of made our position clear that we'll support whatever needs to happen to make that game happen and we'll be ready to play it and obviously just wish everyone in Ukraine well and, and hope, as you say, that that um, situation they're in ends sooner rather than later. But um, as you say, from our perspective, we've just got to, to wait and see 
what happens with that fixture and we're ready to play it whenever we're asked to. Yeah, and obviously the camp, uh, the home games are now at Hamden, um, which is a major, major statement. And I've been lucky enough to be at the three games so far. Um, I've, I've enjoyed them to a degree. Um, apart from the last result against Ukraine, unfortunately, but we still got a draw in the last minute, to be fair. Um, but what have, what have you made about the... Um, I mean, just that statement of the, the poster of Andy Robertson and Rachel Corsi on the uh, main entrance at Hamden, it just sends such a great statement. And how do you think that's um, affected things? I think you've summed it up really well. It's a great statement. It's a sort of iconic entrance to Hamden as you go up those stairs. And I think for your women's captain, your men's captain to get equal prominence as a statement, along with playing games at Hamden, um, I understand people, again, people have opinions on that, whether it's the right place to play, because people will say a smaller ground's better if you've got a smaller audience. But it's a national stadium for a reason. It's not the men's national stadium. It is the national stadium for football. So it naturally should be the home of our women's national team. And we should have the ambition to try and fill that and, and get to the point that we have major crowds coming along to watch our, our women's team at Hamden. I really enjoyed the games there. We're leaving it a bit late. I think I'm getting older and greyer watching the, the Hungary game in particular when uh, Rachel Corsi scored the, the very, very late to go. Uh, there's been a few sort of hairy moments along the way. But um, just, I think, for um, young girls in this country as well to see female players at Hamden, they can have that dream and that dream can become a reality. Um, that's quite empowering. And it's a really important message that the Scottish FA is sending out that, that they believe in the women's national team. They support it and believe it should have the same presence and importance as, as the men's national team. So uh, we've also got a record of 18,000 whatever against uh, Jamaica set in 2019 for that friendly. That's a record out there to beat. Is that something that you can see happening in the not too distant future? I think records are there to be broken so we've got to obviously be ambitious. That game was quite a unique game because it was obviously the sort of send-off um, for Shelley and the team going to the World Cup. Um, I think there was a lot of free tickets given away to try and really encourage the audience for that one as well. But that doesn't take away from the fact that at that moment in time, that was a number of people that wanted to come to Hamden and watch a women's national team. So that precedent has been set, if you like. Um, so we've, we've got to look to that to be our target going forward. And we just build towards that as, as we go. And you hope some of the, the games that we get coming up will be really exciting ones and we can shine a light on the really... Um, positive things that are happening in women's football and just I think even it's not even just about the national team I think the more conversation and visibility we have of women's football generally in Scotland even if the domestic league is more visible and more spoken about in the media I think that drives just a general interest which in turn will result in, in bigger crowds um, for the national team so yeah as I say records are there to be broken so we won't be shy about that yeah, um, you obviously were saying about giving um, tickets away for um, Jamaica game. There was a period of time when the Scotland men's national team tried giving tickets away and it didn't work. So at least you, you get managed to get people to come along. So it shows um, how big an occasion that was that Jamaica game. Uh, so what's the Garcia role at the SFA, the one that you're temporarily away from just now that you'll hopefully be going back to after the four month period? Head of um, girl and women's football, just tell us a little bit what that role entails. It's probably as broad as it sounds, John, and that um, everything to do with girls and women's football, I have a little bit of oversight of. So we launched the Girls and Women's Strategy, which was the first one the Scottish FA has ever had um, just in the, the sort of summer of last year. So within that, there's a number of 
pillars and key areas that we're looking to develop. So I've sort of got strategic oversight of them to make sure that we're, we're working towards our targets. And it's actually really, it's a really interesting role because it's so varied. You know, one day you'll be working really in the participation space and launching, you know, like our UEFA Playmakers programme with Disney for five to eight-year-olds and young girls playing for the first time. The next minute you'll be looking at, you know, the performance pathways for our elite young players and then there's a sort of off-the-field stuff that you get involved in as well in terms of um, trying to drive commercial revenues, working with the broadcasters on the broadcasting side of things, um, also the visibility piece with our marketing team. So it's, it's really, really varied. But in a nutshell, it's really about trying to deliver against our strategy. So driving participation, improving performance, growing the visibility of the game, all those things are essentially... Um, under my, my remit so I can definitely say no two days are the same yeah, that, that's when you know it's a, it's a good job when no two days are the same. It doesn't become um, mundane and monotonous. So it's obviously a, um, a, a very good role that you're doing. Um, and does a lot of it involve building relationships with the clubs as well? Oh, 100%. That's probably the single most important part of this job is just building relationships with people. But I believe that's true in any job, in any walk of life. I think relationships you have with people around you are the most important thing if, if you have those positive relationships and you can build that trust even when you don't agree on certain things or you have a difference of opinion just having built those positive relationships makes those situations so much easier because you can have a, a you know a really sensible discussion people may change their mind or not but I think that's really important and particularly because I worked over at SWF before and the, the club side of things working with the clubs is something that I've been really used to and you get a real understanding that all the clubs are different um, in terms of where they're at in their journey, in terms of the challenges they have. Some have challenges with facilities, others have challenges with volunteers or attracting girls to play, others have, don't have waiting lists because they've not got any, any space on the pitch to play. You know, everyone's got different challenges and I think um, you only know that through speaking to the people on the ground, all the kind of emails in the world and communications don't give you that insight you really have to get out there and meet the clubs and you know I like trying to go out and, and see them on their own patch as well and you get a real sense of what they're up to and I think we appreciate that as well taking the time when you can to, to just get out and, and see them. And you mentioned obviously about pitches I think that's just one of them one of the stumbling blocks that you come across is there any other stumbling blocks that you um, that come across in your job? Um, every, every club is different so you know in some areas facilities are a bit more challenging than others for some um you know it's recruiting coaches or you know keeping volunteers in the game I think COVID was quite challenging because a lot of people sort of step back from their volunteering role temporarily and then have maybe not we haven't all gone back to so sometimes that some clubs are struggle to recruit volunteers but every club is so so different and I'm just thinking about some of the clubs now that I've worked with the, the challenges that exist for everyone quite more often than not most would tell you it's resource that everybody wants to do the same thing they want to deliver the best they can for the girls and women's section so whether that's more nights training or a better standard of coaching or bringing in sports science or analysis or just having more sessions for young girls to come and enjoy playing football not even necessarily in competition format but quite often it's resource and whether that's financial, human or facilities, um, that, that can be a challenge. And that's just one that you, you try and support clubs with. And whether that be through the Scottish FA directly or pointing them in the direction of where you know their support locally or nationally, then 
Um, yeah, that there's always going to be challenges in the job just to try and support and help the clubs navigate those challenges. Yeah, um, Vinny, who is also part of the podcast, asked the question, well, a couple of questions rolled into one. With the popularity of women's football increasing in recent years, what has been the biggest factor in this and what is the next step? Um, I think the thing, one of the single biggest factors has to be the national team qualifying for major tournaments. Um, I don't think you can hide away from that. that it, it just showcased the game in a completely different light. I think the perception of women's football at that point changed, particularly in the World Cup when... I think we still sort of record media coverage of women's football, um, you know, the kind of mainstream commentators having an interest and certainly having a, a commentary on women's football. I think that was a bit of a flagship moment for us in terms of the perception of the game. But more recently, I think what clubs are doing is beginning to really change perceptions of the game and include the move of the league into the SPFL into that conversation because I think all of these things, along with clubs playing in major stadiums, some clubs going full-time, employing players on full-time professional contracts, all these things um, from the performance and elite side change the perception of women's football, that it's a really true performance sport that's worth going along to see. And you hope in turn that those kind of role models that, that exist will drive participation. And, and that's the next step, so just that. What we saw at the World Cup when you get every four years, can we deliver that domestically week in, week out and have real quality and positive coverage of our game? Role models that are visible every week of the year rather than maybe every four years when we're at a World Cup or a major tournament. Can we deliver that? Because if we can do that, the number of young people in Scotland that will have incredible female role models playing football, that will encourage them to participate as players or coaches or match officials so that that's the next steps is just to try and embrace what happened at the World Cup and try and create something similar domestically Yeah there seems to be as many people hold um, hold Aaron Cuthbert as a national hero as much as John McGinn which I think is um, you know, pleasing to see I mean you can only, only have to look at the the, um, the recent um, games against the Pharaohs and hungry to see the amount of people that are wanting to get their um, photo with the girls. It's just great to see them, you know, and the rise in the participation of girls in football, you know, that, that can only be good as well. Yeah, I think players like Erin are really important for that um, because young people can connect with Erin. People forget how young she is as well because she's so successful and has been at the highest level for a long time. She's still a young player herself and scarily has got time to get even better, so I think having young young role models like that as well, that the kind of the kids of today can really connect with, you know, it's really important. And and we've seen what happened when we get to the World Cup. The number of young kids out playing football just goes through the roof, and the number of young girls playing, in particular post twenty nineteen, went up by you know seventeen eighteen percent, which was unheard of at, at that time. So yeah, having role models like Erin, but also also your ones that play more domestically here. And it's no different to men's football in that sense you know young kids look up to John McGinn and Andy Robertson and want to be them and we need to give them the female version of that as well so that they can have the same kind of dreams and aspirations yeah definitely but I think there are pl- plenty of uh, female role models you know we've mentioned Erin we've mentioned Rachel Gorsey mentioned uh, Leanne Crichton you know who's um, going on to do well as a pundit as well as them doing well as a, a assistant manager at Motherwell just now. So I think um, we need to talk these people up a bit more as well. Oh, definitely. And there's so many positive role models in, in women's football. You've named a few there. You could probably go on and on and on about 
just the commitment that they have to their sport and a number of them, the one, like for example, Leanne Crichton and Joe Loves the World that played at a time when there wasn't a huge financial reward for playing and there maybe wasn't the same spotlight. So their commitment to their sport, you know, they were so intrinsically motivated just to do well and the, the sacrifices they made probably in their, their personal and social lives to, to maintain that level was also sometimes having to have a, a day job. You don't really get better role models than that in life, that dedication to your sport without you know, any great adulation. So I think those are the kind of role models that I would look to. And then you've got the more kind of younger, modern ones that are, that are out playing in the English Premier League and you know, not just playing there. You know, some of the best players in the English Premier League are Scottish. You'll need to look at Caroline Weir. She probably just get all the season at the start of every year just to save the vote. <laughs> just tends to come up with these magical moments in, in big games and it's brilliant that we've got players playing at that level and you know kids up here can look look to that and think that can that can be me one day yeah caroline is um what you would call um a truly world-class player i would say yeah i'd agree with you she's just got a i think i think when you see experts in their field they make it look easy and caroline's got that in her locker she she looks she makes the game look really really simple but there's an art to, to be able to do that. And I think when you've got players with that ability that, that also in big moments and big games step forward and, and produce that little bit of magic, that's that's a pretty special player and probably most teams in the world would take Caroline Weir. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But um, I'm sure she's happy um, at Man City. Um, a, a, lot of the, a lot of these players that we're talking about, I know for a fact that the conversation I had with Leanne um, for... Tatarama Magazine and on this podcast tells the story about how she was um, playing with her brothers mainly to develop her skills because the, um, there was no football team. She was just playing with the boys all the time and a lot of the, the girls that, you speak, um, that were in, in squads would have been playing with the boys before um, they turned 16 and stuff. But now we're at a stage where there's a lot of girls teams. Obviously, we mentioned the Glasgow women, uh, Glasgow City role model um, and stuff like that. It's, it's good to see that... Um, it's transforming the other way a bit. Yeah, and I think just having more girls teams, it just normalises football participation for girls. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I was the girl that played football and that defined me because there weren't really any others. And certainly in my primary school, I think there was two or three out of however many hundred were at my secondary school. So, you know, that sort of defined who you were when I was growing up. Whereas now I'd like to think, there are a lot of girls that play football and it's less defining in terms of, of who of who you are. And I think that that says a lot that it's just become normal that there are more girls teams. Um, if girls want to participate in football, you know, you don't get a funny look anymore when you play football. Because that, that was the reaction I always got whenever you mentioned you played football as a youngster. Was, it was quite surprised um, just simply because it wasn't the norm. So I think the more we can make it normal that, the girls can and should play football and then we're doing something right if we get into that space. Yeah, so what was your kind of football um, background growing up then? Um, Just played from a young age, I think from about five, six years old. I've got a brother that's a year younger than me, so we played out in our back garden all the time and at eight years old I joined my first club which was Largs down in Ayrshire. Um, But I lived in Ardrossan at the time, so it was a little journey um, down the coast to Largs on a Saturday morning, but 
it's funny at that time there was no teams or leagues for for girls, so you just went along and trained every Saturday morning for an hour and a half at nine a.m. And I think there was maybe two tournaments every summer, and for two or three years that's all I did, just trained and played in these couple of tournaments, and never thought anything else of it because you didn't know the alternative. And over the years, that the leagues and the competitions started to come in and become more regular. And I played for Kilmarnock up until I was about seventeen. Then went to uni and played football at uni and at Scottish Uni and went back into club football when I moved up to Aberdeen and spent a bit of time playing up there before I finally kind of retired after after an injury. So I just always enjoyed playing football. It was always part of my life. And when I look back now, some of my best memories come from that. Also, some of my best friends. And I think that's the other thing about football. Not it's a real minority that will get to the very very top, like a Caroline Weir, but. There's so much that everybody can get out of football just in terms of playing that team sport and that camaraderie you get with your teammates. That's really hard to replicate when when you stop when you stop playing that sort of dressing room environment and the fun that comes with that. So I just think I'm lucky that I was allowed and enabled to play football and got that experience because I know maybe the kind of era I came through there, there weren't as many people that did that. Yeah, I never quite got to your level. Um, so <laughs> seven of sizes, um, my level. I do that still on a Friday night. That's as high as I'm getting. I don't think Steve Clark's knocking a mad one. But uh, no, but the thing is, you, you mentioned the point. It's about um, it's about enjoyment first and foremost. I think some people it's it's forgotten about. Certainly, when you're talking about the senior game, um, it. It's all about pressure. It's all about oh, you have to win, otherwise the manager gets out of players get transfers. But you forget almost about the winning part, and that's something that uh, so the um the, the fun part, should I say? And uh, I think that's often forgotten, especially especially when you see like um boys club football, for example, and the amount of parents that are screaming at each other, and you just they're still they're ten. <laughs> No, I know, you're absolutely right. For me, it should be about enjoyment. It's particularly the younger ages when girls are, or even boys are just starting to play football. It should be fun, it should be enjoyable, it shouldn't be about the result. Kids are naturally competitive anyway. You don't need to put a trophy against it to make them want to win and to compete against each other. So it should be about enjoyment and we've all got a responsibility to try and create that culture because the better the culture is within the game, the more likely we're going to have more kids that want to stay involved and play football. So we've all got that um, responsibility to make sure we, we create that environment. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, as you mentioned, only a small minority get to you know elite level. Um, but for those who are dropping out, there's got to be some sort of protections that they stay in the game in some capacity, whether it's going to like junior foot, junior football, pub football, or just playing like kick about and um, with your mates for seven sides or whatever. I know, and that's something. Uh, more recently, I've tried to get back and play fives a few times because you miss that. Just enjoy kicking a ball, and I think you want people of that lifelong participation. And I think football's evolved in recent times. If you look at the sort of um, walking football for thirty fives, football, small sided stuff. I think it used to be if you played football in Scotland, you pretty much had to register for a team, commit to playing at a weekend, train at least once a week. And whatever the weather was, you know, it was a pretty serious level of commitment. You know, it was strips and shin pads, the whole works. Whereas I think now we accept that at different stages in life, people want to consume football differently. So we've got to adapt to make sure that football is available in, in different ways that, you know, I've got young kids and a busy job, so I couldn't possibly train and play 
apart from the fact that I can run the length of myself right now, you know, just couldn't possibly play on a Sunday and train two or three nights a week. But I think at the odd games of fives on a Monday or Tuesday night, that, you know, that's brilliant. I think we just need to remember that, that the majority of people play football for, for fun. And you, you do, we all get lost in the high-profile moments, don't we, in the big, um, you know, Scotland winning games or getting to World Cup or, you know, whatever it is. We, we all get lost in those moments. But actually, for most of us, we just want to enjoy playing and watching the sport that we love. Exactly. And um, I understand you play fives occasionally with uh, Ailey Barber. Um, is she competitive? Uh, so Ailey and I went to uni together. So we've been good friends since come back, what, 20 years ago now we went to uni together so I was we'd kick a ball now and again on a, a Monday night um, I, she's competitive as well but I think when, it's funny when you go on the football pitch I think that whatever kind of player you were when you were younger it just comes back into you I still think I can dribble past players when I definitely can't and at least still got a wee late tackle on there as well so it's, it's good fun though just enjoy it yeah, so it's all about the banter at the end of the day. And, um, you know, you've got to remember it's a five-a-side game and not the World Cup final. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, there's some people that forget that um, these days. Um, Chris, also the podcast, um, asked a very good question, this one. What one thing can the women's game teach the men's game to improve it? There could be a few, actually. That is a good question. Um Probably one of the things that, and I don't know if this is a lesson, but just one of the things that I've picked up that's been really positive in the last period is just been the willingness for the clubs to see the bigger picture. Um, clubs looking at what's good for the game. What, what's, and I think that's just come through the journey that they've been on. Um, going back just 10 years, maybe even less than that, the clubs have always had to work quite closely together because for a long time, Women's football's had to really fight for everything that it's got, whether that be in terms of resource or attention or profile. Um, so I think there's been a culture created there where they actually have a sense of togetherness, that they're in something together and, and it's worth working collaboratively to get to that end goal. And I've certainly found that working with the Premier League clubs on creating the new leagues. So very rarely, if ever, have I heard anyone speaking about, well, from my club's perspective, that is better because, or, you know, looking at it through that lens, they're very much looking at what's the best thing for the game overall. And I hope that's something that we can maintain the women's game. I think the more competitive it gets, the more revenues that come in, there's always that possibility that, you know, that more competitive element comes in off the pitch. But, but certainly that's something... Um, that I hope we're able to keep within the women's game um, because it just sets it just sets the right tone, especially when you're going into a new season. You're trying to kick off something um, pretty special and exciting. I'd love to see that mentality transform to the men's game because the men's game is self-preservation. That's probably, to be honest, why I'm skeptical about moving to the SP- SPFL. But as I say, I hope you get um, you all prove me wrong because I want to see the the game thrive. No, and I'm sure I'm sure we will. Yeah, good. Um, we've got um, the Women's Cup quarterfinals this weekend, um, the Scottish Cup. So, um, so there's a couple of tasty ties there. Um, Partick Thistle versus Hibs, Hearts versus Kilmarnock and Stirling Uni versus Glasgow City on Friday, and Aberdeen versus Celtic on Sunday. Um, how do you see these games going? I think they'll all be quite interesting. Partick Thistle Hibs probably jumps out to as one that's going to be quite close. I think the last it was only recently they played each other, and I think it was just a one-nil 
yeah. win for Hibs. And you know, this is all just a really, you know, they deserve so much credit for coming yeah. up. The manner they came up so late, you know, without much time to prep. How they ten eleven days notice or something. I how how they've coped in the Premier League, I think, has surprised everyone if they're being honest and not just cope, like really performed and competed. So I think that game against Hibs will be particularly tasty and interesting because um, Partick Thistle are really stubborn and difficult to break down. Hibs will obviously try and play through them, but Hibs have had a lot of games recently, so I think that one will be pretty interesting. Aberdeen Celtic's probably another one. Um, Aberdeen have got, for me, some of the best young players in, in the country, um, but with that comes a little bit of inconsistency at times, I guess. So um, I think that will be another sort of interesting game. And then you've got Hearts, Kilmarnock, They'll, they'll know each other from um, previous years when Hearts were down in the Premier League two and Kilmarnock, you know, pushing up, pre- um, pushing up towards the top end of the Premier League two. So I think that'll be another one where I always think it's quite nice when you get a Premier League one playing a Premier League two because it kind of gives you a barometer of if you're the Premier League two team, you get a sense of well, how far off it are we and what, where do we need to improve. So I think for them that'll be um, quite an interesting one. And then obviously you've got City and still in uni in there as well so that'll be a tough tie for still in uni and they probably were the last tie that they wanted to get out of that but listen they've got this far for for a reason so um, and it's interesting sometimes the cup teams just perform differently even if they're having a difficult season in the league the cup sometimes is just that little moment of inspiration that, that takes you away from maybe the league but it's been a bit of a struggle and a difficult year and um, they'll just be looking to get a good account in themselves I'm sure yeah, definitely. Um, as an Aberdeen supporter, I was um, when I looked at draw, I was hoping there was two teams I was hoping Aberdeen would avoid. Unfortunately, got one of them. Um, <laughs> but you never know at home. You just you just never know. And they've given Celtic a couple of decent games this season. Um, um, but Partick Hibs, as you mentioned, is a, a real standout tie because Partick did beat Hibs earlier in the season at home. So there's no reason to say why they can't do it again. And as we say, eleven days notice. To get into Prem, to get into um, SWPL one, and they've coped admirably. I mean, they look as though they're going to um, avoid the playoff, which a lot of people, as I said, they'd have been bottom. I think. I think most people, if they were being honest at the start of the season, if if there was sort of odds on it, would have said Partick Thistle, as you say, one of the odds on ones to, to either go down or be in that kind of bottom group. But they've done incredibly. They've done incredibly well and credit to them because they haven't had that lead into the league where they might have had a bit more time to prepare or recruit. And they've just come out with such a refreshing attitude of, and I think they've got good coaches in there as well that really bring a, a kind of professionalism to them. And I just they seem to be quite a close-knit group as well that, that play for each other and, and enjoy it. So I think that's probably the 50-50 tie if you looked on paper. It's the one most people wouldn't want to call. Yeah, well, good luck to um, all eight teams um, this this weekend and being impartial. Come on, Aberdeen. <laughs> uh, so uh, one one other thing I just need to um, touch upon before we do the slow fire stuff. And um, if there's one if there's one thing that's um, that we could see um, some happening is that is women's coaches breaking it into the men's game because we're seeing a lot of men's coaches in the in the women's game because um, they're obviously judging by by merit as it should be and as far as I'm concerned if a woman's good enough um, to manage or coach in the men's game um, then they should be given that opportunity and it's still a bit of a close shop just now how how soon how how far away do you think it is before 
like say for example, not Towner for the job, but say Leanne Creighton got the role of assistant manager somewhere in the Scottish Championship, for example. I think I think anything is possible. Now I don't I don't think it's something that we should think is wholly unrealistic. There's probably a number of reasons that we don't have as many well qualified female coaches as we do male coaches straight away. So the, the number of top female coaches is, is lesser. Um, there's a tradition of men's football where it's always been men's coaches. But if you'd asked people 10 years ago about Rangers being full-time or Celtic playing at Celtic Park and Aberdeen at Pataudry and professional players, people would probably have thought that was unlikely. So I think it is absolutely possible. We've probably got a job at the Scottish FA to do to try and make sure we continue to deliver the, the courses and make sure that we get more females on that coaching pathway and when they get to that point in the pathway where they're maybe going into the licences, some females are maybe a bit less confident to go into that environment. So we need to do a bit of work there to make sure we've got more females going through the, the coaching courses. But those numbers are on the way up. And I think some of the bespoke courses that have been happening have been really positively received. So there's just about a building a, a confidence within the female coaches and they believe that they can go and coach within the men's game if they want to. Um, and then there's just that culture piece and I think the more um, we make the women's game visible and the perception of it changes to something that is professional I think you're more likely to to see just a different view altogether of women's football and female coaches as well so definitely not impossible and we'll maybe be back on here in a few years time talking about the, the first female coach um, but you've always already had Shelley and it's Sterling of course so it, it's not unheard of that it has happened already in Scotland and mm-hmm. um, did really well and was really well thought of in there. So we have seen it, um, but I take your point, maybe further up into the SPFL league, it's something that I suspect we will see in years to come. Yeah, I would like to think so, as long as it's obviously merited, because what we've got to remember is that um, it can't just be a tick box exercise. It's got to be based on individual merits um, because it's the same for the black and ethnic minorities because there's not as many there until, like, like say Kevin Harper and Alex Dyer got jobs. But um, it's... Hopefully something that will start changing, but as long as the participations from those um, groups are there and that the, 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 they've got the necessary qualifications, absolutely, and um, that we need to champion. Um, but listen, Theo, thanks very much for your time. I just need to round off a couple of um, slow fire questions. So um, first of all, a regular one that we ask on the podcast, what's your favourite pie? Oh, got to be steak. Steak, steak pie. pie. All day long. Yeah. Good choice. And uh, what's your favourite tipple? Well, I don't really drink anymore. Um, if I was now going for a drink, probably just a nice glass of white wine. Very civilised now. Nice. Um, and some have been throwing at guests recently. Um, if you were to invite four people around for a dinner party for taking white wine, who would they be and why? Oh, that's a great question. Four people. Um... I think I'd want Sir Alex Ferguson there. Um, I think he's, he's just been around so long. He'd have so many good stories to tell you, wouldn't he? Have, I think he'd enjoy a wee glass of wine and a steak pie as well. So um, Alex Ferguson is definitely going to be there. Um, who else would I have in that? It doesn't need to be just football people, does it? Anyone? It's within, within, within football. Um, but they can be like football right. presenters or football players or 
or bring bring Ellie around then so she can come around and enjoy a bit of steak pie with us as well. I think she'd quite fancy a chat with Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, keep the balance there. One other. What else would I have around for dinner? Probably, oh, I'd probably have Julie Fleeton or somebody in there as well, a female footballer, just to get a, um, people that would enjoy the chat with Alex Ferguson, I think. And then myself, obviously, I'll cook for them, but the four of us will, will sit and have a dinner together. That'd be a, I think that'd be a football chat for the night. So you're inviting four guests, so it's really five oh, that are going to season. They have some, another person. Oh, okay, okay. Um... Probably, maybe a current Scotland player, uh, probably John McGinn or somebody. He looks like he'd be quite good fun, bring a bit of a fun. He'd be in the karaoke probably afterwards as well. So, and we'll have John McGinn in there as well. John McGinn, Sir Alice Fergus and Julie Fleeton and Daily Barber. That sounds like a, a good night out, a good night. That's a good night in. Yeah, definitely. Um, could turn into an out afterwards, you never know. It just depends how much <laughs> white wine's flowing. <laughs> uh, who were your... Um, who were your like, football idols when you were growing up? Um, most of my football idols were, were male. Julie Fleeton was probably the female football idol I had because she was the one sort of, mm-hmm. biggest female player at the time that I was playing. Um, but I watched a lot, like I watched all football. Like I really loved watching Italian football when I was younger, when it was on a Sunday, and then you had the sort of Saturday Gazette program. Um, so one of my favourite players was um, Gabriel Batistuta when I was growing mm-hmm. up. Do that in that Fiorentina, Fiorentina era when the, the purple strip and just uh, that kind of like, exciting player and scored goals. I always liked forward attacking players. So as I got older, it was like watching the English Premier League, David Ginola, Dennis Bergkamp, Gianfranco Zola, all these sort of really sort of creative goal scoring, the, the sort of kind of maverick in the team. That's the, the player that I would have gravitated to, but. Certainly loved the Italian football as well, like Rakoba and just players that were, were different, a bit mercurial and, and did something different in a game and you got excited to watch. So a few Italian footballs in there and a bit of English football. Um, and then Mark Walters was one as well, just because he was a wide player and I played that role. So um, just players that liked going, going past and, and, and dribbling and doing something a little bit exciting. Excellent. Which, um What's been the best football game that you've been to? Best football occasion you've been to? Well, I've been to quite a few. Um, Scotland France sticks out for me in terms of the, the men's team when they when um, Gary Caldwell scored the goal at, at hand. Yes, that whole that whole campaign was just a bit crazy. We we actually we were into games expecting to win. Like there was just a sort of siege mentality and. When I think of some of the results we got over those campaigns, like we probably should have made it to a major tournament, but we just kept sort of falling short um, because it was much smaller and tighter competitions at that time. Um, but I was also really lucky uh, a few years ago to get down to Anfield um, when they played Borussia Dortmund. Uh, I think that game finished 4-3. Yeah. An incredible night. And again, just for the atmosphere in the stadium, I think that's what makes football when you go to a game and you come out and you, you know, I don't know about you, but when you come out a game and you've been really engrossed in it, it takes me a few hours to wind down from it. You know, that excitement level when you're replaying the game, you want to watch it when you get in. So, um, so definitely Scotland, 
France just because it was just ridiculous that we beat France and it was just a crazy, crazy day. And I think it was an evening kickoff, so it was a kind of day out and everyone just enjoyed it. Um, but that Liverpool game was also pretty special just for the for the atmosphere. Yeah, that France Scott Scott France game was a five pm kickoff on a Saturday night. It was it was a great day. That um, what was your favourite Scotland shirt? Uh, oh, I like the France ninety eight one because that was one that was kind of one of the first. I remember ninety six, but I remember France ninety eight particularly um, just because they were playing Brazil. You know, we were playing the opening game of the the World Cup, and I like that the France ninety eight shirt. There was another one I liked. Um, I think it was the one that McFadden scored against France and yes, the white, the white with the blue, blue, blue saltire. Salt I quite like that one as well. So I'm going tradition France 98, but I also like that kind of white with the, the sky blue. It was a bit different, a bit, a bit cool. Yeah, that was definitely the best of the Diodora away kits without question. Um, and the last question, so stopper, um, you knew this was coming. Uh, Name a um, women's six to say football team from a Scotland perspective. Uh, okay, so we need a goalie in there, don't we? Um, yeah, that would help. Uh, so I'll, I'll go with uh, put Gemma Fay in goals, haven't we? Because most capped Scotland player. She actually played at fives fairly recently with us. Um, so uh, she's another one that turns up now and again for a wee kick about on a Monday night. So uh, uh, Gemma's definitely in goals for us. Um, is this a women's team I'm picking yeah Sean? yeah that's to keep fine. the theme of women's football yeah definitely that's fine uh, probably at the back I need to go with Leanne Ross she because she can play anywhere pretty much and I played with Leanne at uni so I know Leanne pretty well so I'm keeping in with the right people here so they'll still speak <laughs> to me so uh, Leanne would play at the back um, obviously Scotland's most decorated player domestically in, in Scotland and winning all those titles in a row with Glasgow City and now involved with the national team. She would keep everybody right and would be all right sitting at the back. She wouldn't be too bothered about getting herself forward so she can let everyone else do that. Um, midfield, a further forward, probably put in like a, probably like a, maybe a Joe Love or somebody in there as well, just sitting, just sitting in front of Leanne, keeping, mm-hmm. keeping another team out, keeping the ball moving. Um, again, just an incredible career, and, and again, I know Joe from years and years back. She actually played at Largs at the same time when I first started playing. So, um, that kind of connection there with Joe as well. I'd probably put a couple of more kind of up to date players in the creative spaces. So maybe uh, maybe put in Caroline Weir and Erin Cuthbert. We spoke about them. They've kind of got that feudal mm-hmm. ability, so they can be the ones creating. And then you've got your Julie Fleeting up front, haven't you? She's just the one that's going to bag the goals for everybody. So I think that's pretty. That's a pretty decent team. And who's managing it? Oh, good. Um, well, we need to put Anna back in there. We've spoken about her, haven't we? And our influence over her. And she managed a lot of those attacks. She maybe managed nearly all of those players at some point, actually. So she would have a decent knowledge of them all. Um, There'd be no slacking on her watch either. So we'll, we'll, we'll put Anna Spagnol in there. Yeah, that's a, that is a pretty good team. Well, listen, Fiona, thanks very much for your time and um, bigging up the women's game. And uh, it's something that we'll certainly try and do a lot more of. And um, yeah, good luck with um, your current role um, with the SWPL and um, good luck going back to the SFA. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Okay.